What's up, Flatirons? How are we? Good, good, good. Bunch of you out there. Hey, uh, we're continuing in our series this week uh, called Full of It that Jim kicked off last week. And I got to be honest with you, that was probably the best sermon I've ever heard in my life last week. And um, I've, I've heard Jim preach more than anybody else in the room. I've heard him preach literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And what you guys got to experience last week is just kind of a window into one of the main reasons I was willing a little over seven years ago to pick up my family and move them across the country. Because finding a leader worth following in today's day and age is really, really difficult. And uh, Jim's willingness to hang on to grace and truth with reckless abandon makes him a leader that's really easy for me to follow. And so I'm just really, really glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for all the kind notes you've been sending lately via email and all that stuff too. That's been awesome. Hey, um, I came home on Tuesday this past week and it was a snow day for my kids after being back to school from spring break all of one day. They got a snow day on Tuesday, much to my wife's chagrin. And so by the time I got home on Tuesday, they were absolutely stir crazy and so much so that they had, abs- they had actually resorted to board games. Now, I don't know how this works in your house, but um, board games are a danger zone in my house because my wife takes board games really seriously. All right. Like she throws elbows. She gets serious, man. I mean, and I haven't played a board game with her in over 10 years because it's just really, really bad for our marriage. And so, um, I walk in and they're playing the game of life. Has anybody ever played the game of life? Yeah, I've never played this game in my life. When I, when I grew up in my family, we mostly just played cards. We're a little bit more hardcore than board games. And so um, I walk in and I see that they're playing board games and I cautiously kind of walk over and observe everything. And I sit about five feet away from the table and I'm watching as Allie's trying to teach the, the three-year-old and the, the seven-year-old and the nine-year-old how to play the game of life. And the three-year-old's like grabbing everybody else's pieces and throwing them across the room and they're hitting the three-year-old and it's just going really, really well. And so, um, so I look at Allie and at one point I just go, how, how do you win? the game of life. Like what's the object to the game? And she's like, I don't have time to tell you right now. So I start reading, I start reading the instructions and here's the instructions straight out of the rule book of the game of life. When you've reached the end of the game, you must choose whether to retire at millionaire estates or countryside acres. I don't know if that's some sort of sick and twisted old folks home where they're really mean to you. I don't know what that is. Um, if you retire at millionaire estates, you have the chance to receive four additional life tiles. If you're the richest person to retire there at the end of the game, all the players repay their loans and add up their life tiles and money. The player with the most money wins the game. And there it is. That's the American dream, right? The player with the most money and the most toys at the end of the game wins the game. That's how you end up on top. That's the good life. That's how things work, right? But then the rules thankfully go on to say this. Sometimes life doesn't work out the way you want it to. And thank you, Game of Life, for reminding us. We, yeah. And that's also true in the game of life. And so I started wondering, what is some of the worst things that can happen to you in the game of life? And so I pulled out the the game board in there and there's all these different like tiles that you can land on and they tell you to do certain things kind of like Monopoly or whatever. And like one of the worst things that can happen to you in the game of life is you like, you have to pay a speeding ticket, right? Like I could not find a a tile space that you could land on that said, go directly to rehab and do not pass go. Like I didn't, I didn't see that one. I didn't see a whoops, she's pregnant tile. You know, I, I, I didn't see any of those things in there that happened in real life. And then it actually goes on and it says this, even if you do not get the salary you want or end up with a car full of kids, you must continue to play by the rules. If you try to cheat your way to success in the game, just as in real life, you will find that you will probably fall before you reach the top. And I thought to myself, that's just not true. 
right? I mean, in the real game of life, in life in general, the reality is sometimes people who cheat actually get to retire in millionaire estates and people who are honest don't. It's that simple. Last week, as we kicked off this series and we looked at this really famous sermon that Jesus delivers called the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is just pulling the pin on grenades and just lobbing them basically into the crowd because he's blowing their minds saying, you thought life looked like this, but the game of life actually works like this. And he goes up on the side of this hill to deliver this sermon. And as he does that, every Jewish person in the room, it would have triggered something in their brain to go, oh, this is just like what Moses did when he went up a mountain and received the law and came back down and gave us the law. Now Jesus is kind of of doing his version of that. When Moses came down, he brought the Ten Commandments. And even if you don't believe in God, if you've ever spent any time looking at the Ten Commandments, you just know that this is a list of things to do and things not to do. And if you do those things and don't do those things, life just works better. It's a really low bar. Like, like for us not to murder one another, life works better that way. All right? For us not to worship rocks, they, don't, they can't do anything for you. Life works better that way. For his wife to just remain his wife and your wife to remain your wife and you don't take his wife and he doesn't take your wife, that's, life just works better that way. That solves everybody a lot of headaches, right? But when Jesus opens his mouth to deliver this sermon on this day, he doesn't give a list of do's and don'ts. What he's actually doing is saying this. He's going, this is how things really are. And this is how life really works. This is ultimate reality. And as I was reading through the Sermon on the Mount the past couple of weeks, one of the great inconsistencies of our culture kind of stood out to me. And there are a lot of inconsistencies to choose from. But the, the biggest one that stood out to me was the difference between the game of life and funerals. And what I mean by that is this, uh, the things that we're conditioned to pursue The things that marketing campaigns tell us are the good life, worth chasing after, worth giving our lives for, are not at all the things that people want talked about at funerals. What I mean is this, I'm a pastor, I've done a lot of funerals over the years, and not many of the funerals that I've done have been for people who were 99 years old who died in their sleep. That's not been the majority of the funerals I've done. They've mostly been tragic. 17-year-old kids dying in car accidents, suicides, murders, parents who died of cancer and left their kids behind, babies who died suddenly. But no matter the circumstances, the family never looks at me and says, you know what I want you to talk about? I want you to talk about how much money he had. I want you to talk about how many hours she worked. I want you to talk about how many stocks she traded or deals he brokered or houses he built. Nobody ever wants me to talk about that stuff. What people want me to talk about is this, the kind of person they were. The kind of person they were. They want me to talk about the essence of the person that they love, regardless of their circumstances, regardless of their bank account, and regardless of the kind of cars they drove. They want me to talk about the kind of person they loved was. What Jesus is saying in this famous sermon is simply this. The good life comes to a certain kind of person. And what he's saying is so shocking, so counterintuitive, so countercultural, so different than every other major teacher and philosopher his time and day and age was saying that most people 2,000 years ago walked away scratching their heads going, that can't be the way that life works. And most people 2,000 years later do the exact same, walk away going, that can't be right. I'll give you an example. So last week we looked at the first of these beatitudes that we're going to be walking through for the next couple of weeks around here. And beatitude simply translates uh, blessed or blessing. It means literally full of God, fully and wholly satisfied in God, connected to God and having God live in you. Simply put, this is the best kind of life. This is the good life. And Jesus says that kind of life belongs to a certain kind of person. And he leads off by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of 
of heaven. And you got to remember who he's talking to. He's talking to a whole bunch of people who are absolutely weighed down by religious expectations. A bunch of people have come to the end of their rope going, I can't live up to this anymore. The bar is too high. I can't carry the weight. It's way too heavy. Spiritually speaking, they're absolutely bankrupt, helpless, and unable to live up to the expectations. Also in the crowd are a bunch of religious people who think they've actually earned the right to live in a relationship with God because of their good behavior and their avoidance of bad behavior. And Jesus looks at both groups of people in the crowd on that day, and he simply says this, It's the spiritually bankrupt. It's the poor in spirit, which literally means to crouch or cower like a beggar. Abject poverty, complete destitution, unable to help themselves, dependent on the alms or gifts of someone else. It's those who recognize they need a savior who will inherit the kingdom of heaven, who get to have the fullness of life. Wow, that's that's a grenade, right? And then he moves on and he says this, remember this one, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. In other words, when you come to the end of your rope and recognize that you are a sinful, sinful person in desperate need of grace and you mourn the fact that you're a sinner separated from God, that's when Jesus says, man, when you really seek after God in that moment, God will come alongside you. He will comfort you. That's how comfort literally translates. It means to come alongside and be with someone. And it's the same thing the Bible has always said from cover to cover. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus is saying in the midst of your brokenheartedness, God is with you. And as he's with you, that's where you get to experience full life. So that leads us to today. Let's, we're going to look at two more today. If you've got your Bibles, pull them out. Go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Pull your programs out. It'll be in there. It'll also be on the screens. Here's the beatitude for this morning. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word meek, it doesn't sit with me very well because when I hear meek, I think weak. I think of somebody who's just has no backbone, no courage, a very whiny person. That's what I, that's what I picture. All the bears fans send your email somewhere else. Cause I don't care. All right. See that, that picture actually couldn't be further from the reality of what the word meek means. The word meek actually literally means strength under control. It means gentle, but not gentle because you have no choice. It actually means gentleness in the midst of strength. It means uh, someone with great strength, but their power being harnessed. The word was actually most often used to describe bridled war stallions. Let me give you a little lesson here because none of you guys grew up in Kentucky like I did. When you grow up in Kentucky, they expose you to several things at a very young age, all right? Basketball, tobacco, firearms, moonshine, and horses in that order, all right? And so (laughs) shoes come way later, all right? And so... So when you guys think horses, all right, I'm afraid the picture you get in your mind is some um, Palomino pony at the Lafayette Peach Festival that has four-year-olds riding on his back all day in a circle, and he just looks like he wants to kill himself. That's not, that's not the kind of horse I'm talking about. I'm talking about a huge, majestic, mighty thoroughbred. And if you've never seen one of these animals up close, you actually would never want to let your kids get near one of them because they're so powerful. And if you've ever leaned on the rail at a racetrack like I have and heard them as they come down the home stretch, it feels like an earthquake and it sounds like thunder because they're so powerful. And yet these mighty majestic animals are controlled. They're harnessed with this little bitty bit in their mouth and this little bitty guy on their back, right? 
These horses, man, if they want to, they have the ability to trample, hurt, and harm everybody around them. And they do that sometimes. But it is the meek horse who wins the race, the strength under control who wins the race. I mean, you can give you another example of what meek means, all right? My, my boys, the, the three-year-old and the seven-year-old, they, like to, they love to play fight with me. And, and it's not really as much play for them because they bring it, man. Like they, they hit me as hard as they can. They kick me as hard as they can. They tackle me and try to take me down as hard as they can. And the reality is I, I can end that in one second. Just whack, you know, right to, the, just right to the face, you know, just boot to the face. It's over. They're done, all right? But, but when I let... When I let the three-year-old pin me, it's not because he's stronger than me. It's because that's, that's what it looks like, strength under control. Now, I'll give you kind of a serious example, all right? And every parent in the room has been here in this moment, all right? At different points in their parenthood phase of life, all right? And so I, I'm putting the kids to bed uh, earlier this week, and I'm putting the boys to bed. They share a room with one another. And so uh, all you parents know, by about the 15th time they've gotten out of bed after I've tucked them in the first time, I'm starting to lose my mind because they've come out and they're like, yeah, he peed on me. He's wearing his underwear on his head and he's calling me this and he's doing that and blah, 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 blah. So by the 15th time I'm in there, you know, when you first tuck them in the first time, you're so gentle, right? Like you just tuck them in and kiss them on their forehead. And I love you so much. By the 15th time, it's like, stay in your bed. You know, that's how, that's how it feels. All right. And so, so at one point as the 15th time I'm tucking them in, one of them says something to me and it just sets me off. And I, I yell at both of them and every parent in the room knows how this feels. I, in that moment, I, I knew I had crossed the line and I had actually broken, broken their spirit and wounded, wounded their heart. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? And in that moment, what went through my mind was way to go, Scott, you win. Good job. Nice work. You're so strong. See, that's, that's the opposite of meek. When I wield my strength against my kids instead of for my kids. I got a, another example for you. I got a couple of friends who are fighters. And uh, what most people perceive about fighters is they must be like the most volatile, like temperamental, like mean-spirited people in the world. And you got to kind of watch out for them. And there's some people like that who fight. But, but my friends, when I watch them, when I watch them train, when I watch them fight, when I watch them live, the thing that stands out to me the most is how under control they are. Strength under control. I mean, think about what it must be like to be able to kill anybody who smarts off to you and not do it, right? Like I'd be in jail if I had that ability. Uh, But when I watch, that's what I see is guys who are under control. And it's often the guy who's the most under control who wins the fight. The most disciplined and the most under control wins. And that's meek. So let's talk about us for a second. I mean, let's just be honest. Is Jesus right? Is Jesus right when he says this is how things really are and this is what ultimate reality is and this is how life really works? Is, is this kind of person, the meek person, the one who really will inherit the earth, as he says? And when he says inherit the earth on this day, the people that are listening to him, they think about the ground under their feet because the ground under their feet is famously known as the promised land and it's been taken from them by the Romans. It's been taken from them. And what Jesus is trying to remind them of on this day is simply this. The land under your feet was given to you. You inherited it. God knocked down walls and gave it to you. And he says, likewise, in the future, when I restore things, when I make all things new, when I restore this earth to the way it was always intended to be, it will be the meek who will inherit the earth. 
And that's upside down to us. That's not the way we think the game of life works because we're conditioned to fight for everything, to throw our weight around, to step on people, over people, and get our way. Jesus says, listen, that kind of person is not full of the good life because that kind of person, their satisfaction is dependent on always being in control, always getting their way, and always coming out on top. If you think about it, Jesus is the ultimate example He's the ultimate example of what it looks like to be meek. Paul said this about Jesus in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Look at this on the screen. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped literally means leveraged. But instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In other words, Jesus didn't leverage his strength against people. He leveraged his strength for people. That's the way Jesus used his strength. That's the definition of meek. So let me ask you this. How does your strength show up? Where and when does your strength show up? Does it show up in what you do to people or what you do for people? Does your strength get used to help people, love people, and gently lead people? Or does your strength show up in how you control people, run over people, and manipulate people? If so, let me ask it this way. How's that going for you? How's life? Because Jesus says that's not, that's not the good life. Peter, one of Jesus' most famous and maybe most temperamental followers, witnessed Jesus in perhaps one of his most meek moments. On the night that Jesus was arrested in a garden, Peter was there with him. All these soldiers come to arrest Jesus. And Peter, being bold as he is and courageous as he is, grabs a sword, picks it up and tries to chop off one of their heads, misses and cuts off this dude's ear. And in that moment, Jesus looks at Peter and says this, put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword, live by the sword, die by the sword, right? Do, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? A legion of Roman soldiers was 6,000 men, 12 legions of angels. I went to Bible college. I'm not good at math. We'll call that a bunch. All right. That's a lot. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having that kind of power at your fingertips and yet Jesus didn't utilize it. That's amazing to me. The one who stopped storms with the word, walked on water, healed the sick, in this moment is meek. He is most definitely not weak. He's powerful beyond measure, which is why Peter, years later, I think reflecting on that moment in the garden, wrote this down. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. The good life, Jesus says, doesn't come to people who take everything by force, who seek to control all their circumstances. That kind of life doesn't pan out in the long run. And that kind of life is not the kind of life that's talked about at funerals. One of my favorite old dead guy preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says it this way. The anvil breaks a host of hammers by quietly bearing their blows. I think that describes Jesus. The kind of person who is meek and under control is... Just living out. This is an outward expression of what they believe to be true in their hearts, which is blessed are the poor in spirit. 
This meekness is an outward form or expression or posture that reflects an internal posture of being poor in spirit. Meek is just kind of saying me too in the way that you interact with other people. This is a person who recognizes they cannot heal themselves, but rather, as Peter says, by his wounds, by Jesus's wounds, you've been healed. See, that's why today this ties into baptism so well. You walked in here today, some of you maybe for the first time, you've never seen this before. You're like, why are there hot tubs down front? What's happening today, you know? This is baptism weekend around here, and it's always a big party. And uh, what you're going to see here in a little bit is a bunch of people go down front here and get dunked fully underneath water. And the reason that we do it that way is because that's what was done in the Bible. And being dunked fully in water is a beautiful picture of three things. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So when you see this in a few minutes, everybody going uh, down and under the water and back up, I want you to think of those three things, death, burial, and resurrection. The way Peter put it was this, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's making a statement saying, I'm dying to sin and I'm living to righteousness. It's a recognition that I can't fix myself, but Jesus did what I needed to be done for me when he went and died on a cross and came back to life for me. This is a demonstration that we can have a new life, the blessed life, the good life, eternal life. One one of my favorite things on baptism weekend, I saw it last night. We had 279 people get baptized last night. It was unbelievable. Yeah. One of my, my favorite things is when I just see big old dudes come down here and get baptized. It takes like five of us to baptize them, you know, and get them up out of the water. And I love that because it's making a statement in front of thousands of people going, I'm not relying on my own strength. I'm relying on Jesus and his strength. And the weird part is in that moment, you'll never appear more strong to your wife, your family, your friends than when you totally surrender your life to Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He went to the cross. Peter said it this way, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's God the Father. And it takes strength to do that. Another thing about baptism is um, it's a beautiful picture of surrender. And we're not into surrender. That's not how we're wired. Over the, over the years, I've had people look at me, and if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe you've had people say this to you like, oh, Christianity, that's just a crutch for weak people. And I always respond the same way. Of course it is. Of course it is. What other option do I, do I have? You may be going, wait a second, Scott. I, I thought you said this whole, this whole meek thing didn't mean weakness. Yeah, we all have relative strength compared to one another in different areas of our life. Let me tell you one place where we're all equal and we all have zero, zero ability to do anything for ourselves. And that's in our ability to reconnect ourselves to God. We have no ability to save ourselves, fix ourselves. We have none of that ability. The Bible refers to us apart from Jesus. Time and time again, the Bible says, apart from Jesus, you are dead in your sins. There's a reason why the Bible chooses that phrase, dead, because it's trying to paint the picture of going, man, you're just as able of reconnecting yourself back to God as a corpse is able of getting up and walking around this room. See, I don't look at someone on crutches and think, well, that's stupid. What, why is he doing that? We were, we were out last night with some friends and one of my buddies was on crutches. I didn't look at him and go, you're so weak and dumb. That's, that's not what I did, all right? Leaning on those things to get along. What's wrong with you? Try to do better. No. Uh, John Piper said it this way. People don't in general think that crutches are bad things. Why does a crutch become a bad thing when it's Christianity? If Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for cripples. Right? And that's why it bothers us. Look at this. And so it is offensive to our self-sufficiency to label Christianity a crutch. See, self-sufficiency and blessed are the poor in spirit, two different things. 
Relying on your own power and strength, not the same thing as being poor in spirit. Jesus goes, it's actually the poor in spirit who inherit the good life. It's not those who think they're so self-sufficient. I I love the way Jim put it last week. I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. It's the exact same thing this week. I'm just one broken, crippled person uh, trying to tell another one where they can be restored and who can heal you and who can stand you up. And that person is not yourself. His name is Jesus. C.S. Lewis said it this way, the change which I most need to undergo is a change that my own direct voluntary efforts cannot bring about. Everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done, watch this, only by God. So Jesus says, blessed, full are those who recognize internally that they're poor in spirit and then externally live out a life of meekness in the way that they treat one another. And then he moves on, Matthew 5, 6, and just lobs another one into the room when he says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You got to understand when he uses the word hunger, he's speaking to a bunch of people who know what that feels like. Not like you and me, like my stomach's kind of growling right now. Like most people in this room have never experienced true hunger. Uh, The people Jesus is speaking to have, when he says hunger and thirst for righteousness, he means my life depends on this in the next few moments, getting something to eat, getting something to drink, because if I don't, I'm going to die. And when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's saying, blessed are those who are so desperate to obey God. It's the most important thing in their life. When he says hunger and thirst for righteousness, righteousness literally means to do what is right. And this is really important. Please don't miss this part. What is right as defined by God. Not defined by you, not defined by me, but as God defines it. In the Old Testament, there's this famous verse, Psalm 42. If you grew up in church, you probably heard it before. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And what we've done is we've Christianized the whole thing and taken like a little picture of Bambi and putting it on a coffee cup and went, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. No, that's not the picture that David was trying to paint when he wrote that. What he was trying to paint was a picture of an animal desperately crawling through the desert with a swollen tongue and totally emaciated on the edge of death. David knew what that felt like. That's why he wrote again in Psalm 63, 1, as he was in the desert being chased down by his enemies, he said this, Oh God, you are my God and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, Jesus is saying today, blessed are those who are desperate, that their deepest desire is for God and to obey God. And again, Jesus is the best example of this. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The thing that filled Jesus up the most, the thing that satisfied him the most was to do what God the Father told him to do. And now he's saying in this sermon, go and do likewise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they will be satisfied. We talk about this all the time around here. We all have hunger and thirst for all kinds of surface level things. We all have surface level desires. We, we pursue people and things to fill us up. The problem is those things temporarily fill us up, but then they leave us empty. We talk about it all the time. Don't try to get from anyone or anything what you can only get from God. Don't make a good thing an ultimate thing. When you do, that, that thing ultimately becomes a destructive thing. We talk about that all the time around here. So Jesus is saying, no, direct your thirst to God. And when you do, you'll be filled. You'll be satisfied. You'll have the good life. He doesn't say the easy life. 
but you'll have the best kind of life. The kind of life where you can be satisfied despite your circumstances, despite how difficult and oppressive and painful your life becomes. You're tapped into someone who never runs out and who never runs dry. So let me put these two things together, all right? Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's put those together in kind of Scott terms, all right? The way I would phrase it would be this. It takes absolutely no strength to live an unbridled life. It takes absolutely no strength to live an unbridled life, to do what you want, when you want, to whoever you want. You know what we call someone who lives like that? Selfish. And a whole bunch of other things, right? You know what takes strength? What takes strength is this, to acknowledge that just because I want to do it, just because I desire to do it, I may feel like I was born to do it, doesn't mean that I should do it. My favorite line from that song that the band sang earlier is this, when what you want is not what you need. How many of us have ever been there? How many of us would have been saved so much pain if we would have pursued what we need as opposed to what we wanted in the moment? See, doing what you want whenever you want is not only arrogant, it's weak. It's dangerous for you and everybody else around you. It takes strength to admit, and this is the first step of recovery. A lot of us know this around here, that there is a God. And by the way, I'm not him. Maybe just maybe the creator of the universe knows how life works best. Actually knows what the blessed good life looks like. It takes strength to pursue obedience to God as opposed to whatever I might have in mind in the moment. Well, let's just be honest. If we'll just let our guards down for a second, you can even put Jesus over here for a second. Let's just talk for a second, all right? Our experience teaches us this. The game of life teaches us this. I'll give you a few examples, all right? Every guy in the room who's married struggles with wrong woman attraction, all right? Someone catches our eye, and then that moment, there is a crossroads. What do you do in that moment? And what I've learned is this. When I choose the path of obedience to God, life works better. When I choose not to be a slave to my sexual desires, but rather to pursue obedience to God and express myself sexually in the context that God says is best, which is in my marriage with my wife, life works better. We know this. We're not going to do a show of hands, but if I did, I bet the three-fourths of the room would raise their hand when I ask this question. How many people's lives have been blown up because of someone else's unbridled sexual expression? Right? See, when I choose the path of obedience to God as opposed to being a slave to my anger and just sinfully flying off the handle with my kids or everybody else around me, life works better. Listen to this. The weakest person in the room is the one who's going off on everyone. The weakest person in the room is the one who's just running over everybody else in the room. When I choose the path of obedience to God instead of being greedy and live out of a generous place in my heart, life works better. How many of us have been blown up by somebody else's greed? Right? We could go on and on and on. Maybe just maybe Jesus knows what he's talking about. Go figure. So when Jesus points us towards something. When he says, listen, this is the way you should handle money. This is the way you should handle sex, family, work, worship, whatever it is. Please understand, it's not because Jesus is trying to take something from us. It's actually because Jesus is trying to give something to us. Even go back to the Old Testament, those 10 commandments, those were not conditions for God's love. Do this so that God will love you. Those were confirmation of God's love. You know how I know this? Because I give my kids rules. I don't give your kids rules because I don't love your kids, right? You give your kids rules because you love your kids. That's confirmation of your love. See, what we're chasing after and what God wants us to chase after is obedience even when we don't understand. That's what every parent wants out of their kids, right? 
I want my kids to trust me enough to obey first and then ask me questions later. We talk about this all the time. Obey first, then you can ask me questions after you obey what I've just told you to do. Because I want them to trust my intentions towards them. I want them to understand that I want good for them. So when I yell stop, I want them to stop immediately. And they may be tempted in the moment to go, ah, dad, you're so boring. You're ruining my bike ride. It's so beautiful outside. But what am I actually doing? I'm trying to keep them from getting hit by a car. See, Anytime Jesus tells us to do something, sometimes it may feel like he's trying to ruin our life, but what he's actually trying to do is prevent us from getting run over. And when you learn to surrender, trust his intentions, obey and ask questions later, man, that's when the good life really begins. And again, baptism is a great example of that. Romans chapter 6 verse 1 says it this way. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, God's cut us a sweet deal. Shouldn't we just do whatever we want because he'll forgive us anyway? Look at what Paul says. By no means. And it literally means may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized. Here we go. Baptism. Baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. There it was, death, burial, resurrection, culminating in this beautiful thing called the newness of life, that we may walk in the newness of life. And that phrase, newness of life, doesn't mean a new, improved version of the old life. It means something completely and totally new. And that's the only way to describe what God has done in some of our hearts around here, right? I knew some of you before. The person you were, man, you don't, you're nothing like that person. That person's dead and gone. You, you are something new, something altogether different. And baptism is a perfect symbol of how Jesus has done that in your life and is doing that in your life. Baptism doesn't mean you're no longer going to struggle. You're no longer going to sin anymore. Paul in the very next chapter says this. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Anybody else have a me too for that? Yeah. That describes the experience of every follower of Jesus in this room. And those of you getting baptized today, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle later today. You're going to struggle five minutes after you get out of the tub. It's not about not struggling from this point on. That's not what it means. The point is simply this. The sin that has enslaved you in your life, identified you in your life, no longer has the power to do that anymore. Look at what Paul says in in Romans 7, 17. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. In other words, you are not defined by your sin anymore. When you get baptized, you're making a statement saying, I'm defined by my Savior. And his name is Jesus. One of our staff people shared a story a while back about a conversation they had with somebody where that person said, Most of the people in my life, including Christians, have told me, if this is the way I feel, then that is who I must be and that is who I am and I should just embrace that. This is the first place that has told me that I don't have to be identified by how I feel, but rather can be identified by who God says I am. That's beautiful. See, when you're baptized, it doesn't mean you're not going to struggle anymore. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin anymore. It means you're no longer identified by your sin. It's a public declaration saying, my deepest desire is to honor and to obey and worship the one who saved me when I could not save myself. If you're in here today and you've been baptized before and you've screwed up royally since your baptism, welcome to the club. All right? Me too. And every other person in the room has been baptized. 
You don't need to do it again because you've messed up since you got baptized. If that were the case, we'd all have to get baptized every 10 minutes, right? It's not the way it works. What we need to do, those of us who've been baptized before, and when we got baptized, we understood what we were doing. We need to reflect on our baptism and remember who we are, that we're a new person created to walk in the newness of life. If you've been baptized before, but you, have no un- you had no understanding when you did it, maybe you don't even have a memory of when you did it. Maybe your parents like, had you baptized as a baby and that was a well-intentioned thing by them. Uh, but baptism, as we see it in the Bible, is for people who believe. So if you're going, man, I didn't believe or I don't even remember, then maybe today you should, you should be baptized as a symbol that Jesus humbly went to the cross on your behalf, was killed and rose on the third day, conquering sin for you so that you could live in the newness of life. If today this has made sense to you for the first time, then you should be baptized. If you've never been baptized before, maybe your heart's been changing and you can't totally articulate it or explain it, but you have these new desires and you trust that apart from Jesus, you were, as the Bible says, living under condemnation. But because of what Jesus has done for you, which is the one thing you could not do for yourself, you now know that there is no condemnation for you. Then be baptized this morning. You may go, I wasn't prepared. We got towels and we got t-shirts. You'll be fine. All right. Come down front and be baptized today. No one else can do this for you. Parents, you can't manipulate your kids into this. Please don't do that. I've seen it done hundreds of times. It won't mean anything. If this isn't based on your belief, then all you're doing is taking a bath in front of a bunch of people with your clothes on and that's weird, all right? (laughs) But if you want to be baptized today to express your desire to be identified no longer by your sin, but to instead be identified by your Savior, you should be baptized this morning. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw a party this morning. I'm going to pray, we're going to all stand and the band's going to sing two songs. And as I pray and as the band's singing, if you want to be baptized, come line up along this wall over here or this wall over here and you can come and be baptized. Let's all stand and let's start this party. Father God, thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for your son Jesus and the gifts of mercy and grace that he brings. Thank you for the newness of life that we can have in him and because of him. We celebrate you today in Jesus' name. Amen.